0: Genesis. We're going to come again to Genesis 39. We have Joseph now a slave in Egypt. He belongs to Potiphar, the captain of the guard under Pharaoh. We're in the middle kingdom of Egypt, 12th dynasty. Height of this dynasty, Egypt is a flourishing kingdom. We're going to pick up reading now in verse one. We'll just start back there. We're going to stop at verse 12. Verse 12. So verses 1 through 12. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, "Lie with me." But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Well last week, we began by acknowledging five biblical truths concerning sexuality and sexual sin. And so let me quickly remind you of those five truths, much briefer form than than last week. Number one, we saw that God is not against sexual intimacy. He is against perversions of sexual intimacy. God is not against sex. God is pro-sex. He created it. He declared it to be good. He even commanded husbands and wives not to abstain from it. And so there is something of the glory of God in sexual intimacy. There is something in this kind of intimacy that points us to to the deeper kind of pleasure that our souls can find in intimacy with Jesus Christ, our ultimate bridegroom. God is not against sex, and therefore Christians should not be either. Rather, we should be against what God is against. We should be against perversions of sexual intimacy that would remove it from the Christ-exalting context of a loving marriage. Number two, we saw that God's standard for us is absolute purity. Um, I quoted Ephesians 5.3, which says, Let, let uh, sexual immorality not even be named among you, Or uh, according to the NIV, let there not be a hint of sexual immorality among you. And so we're to be absolutely clean. We're to be clean in our motives, clean in our thoughts, clean in our speech, clean in our desires. There is to be nothing impure within us. Now, there is nothing impure about noticing the beauty of others... There is nothing impure about desiring sexual intimacy within the context of marriage whether you're married now or whether you're looking forward to that day. Impurity comes when we make when we take that which God has not given to us and we use it for this kind of pleasure. Impurity comes when we look upon another person or take another person whom God has not given to us to be our spouse whom God has not given to us to enjoy in this way and use them as if they were. That is sexual immorality, and the Bible says there is to be no hint of it in us. Number three, we saw that God's motive in commanding absolute purity is love. Love. It is that God loves us and He knows what is best for us. God is not working against our joy. He is working for our joy. He knows that sexual purity is best for both our happiness in this life and our eternal happiness. And so we ought not to think of God as a killjoy, as a prude because He he gives us these commandments. Rather, we should think of God as a loving, good shepherd who is protecting His sheep from great harm, from dangers, from snares. Now the sheep may gaze across the hill and and it looks like the grass over there is good to eat, maybe even better than than what I have here, but the shepherd knows better. And with his rod and with his staff, he will not let the sheep go. He he knows that's where where the wolves are. And he knows that if they will wait for a season, they may indeed be able to go and enjoy that grass and they will be safe as they do so. All that to say God knows what he's doing. Trust him. Trust him. His commands are not meant to to burden you. They're meant to save you. They're meant to help you. They're meant to serve you. Number four, we saw that God's gift to us for this battle is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is a gift to us for this battle. One, because in him we have forgiveness for all of our sexual sins. Um, The guilt for those sins was transferred to Christ on the cross. He has borne the punishment that we as Christians, He has borne the punishment that our sins deserve, including sexual sins. And therefore, there is no condemnation for us. We are not to be crippled or paralyzed by guilt because of past sexual sins, but rather through repentance and faith We are to praise Christ for the sweet forgiveness He has given to us. And then we are to fight the battle for purity in heart, purity in mind, purity in speech. Christ not only brings us forgiveness, but He's also a gift to us for this battle because in Him we have strength. He gives us His Word with examples like Joseph to help us in this battle. He gives us His Spirit and many other precious gifts. To equip us for this battle. And so we don't fight alone. We fight through Christ, with Christ, in the the gifts of Christ. Number five, we saw that God's people need to speak boldly, clearly, and lovingly on issues of sexuality. Our culture is not bashful about shouting false messages about sex into our lives. And the church of our Lord Jesus Christ must also not be bashful about this subject. I said last week there is a place for privacy, absolutely. We also saw that there, we must be careful that we don't indulge in language that promotes the very sins we are seeking to oppose. But carefully, thoughtfully, sober-mindedly, we must not be silent. We must speak the truth. Sex is a gift from God. His plan for it is best, and those who ignore His plans endanger their souls. Proverbs 6 says that those who give themselves to sexual sin are playing with fire and that they will be burned. Proverbs 7 says that those who engage in sexual sin are like oxen being led to the slaughter, and therefore if we love our neighbor... Love for neighbor demands that we not be silent on issues of sexual morality. So those were the, the foundation stones that we laid for, for jumping into this passage. Then we, we decided to, to, indulge, to indulge, to engage in this study under two headings. The first was the temptation presented, and the second was the temptation resisted. We already saw the temptation presented. We saw that Joseph was a handsome man. Talked about how that is both a blessing and a curse. We saw that Potiphar's wife was seeking to seduce him, reminding us that women struggle with sexual sin, not just men. We saw that this temptation was presented forcefully, that Potiphar's wife was overt, that she blindsided Joseph with a strong temptation. She approaches him, he's a, a healthy, young, single man, and in our language, she just says, come have sex with me. And we talked about the importance of making sure that we are spiritually prepared for whatever strong temptation might blindside us, because if we give in, it could destroy not only our lives, but the lives of those around us. Finally, we saw that this temptation was presented not only forcefully, but persistently, that day after day after day, Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce Joseph and uh, we thought about 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and that wonderful promise we have there, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man but God is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it And so we've seen the temptation presented. Now we pick up tonight with the temptation resisted. Um, Our Savior, the great physician of our souls, has given us Joseph as an example of a young man who fought sexual temptation well. And so I want us to learn from him some practical helps for this battle. I want us to observe five ways, five ways that Joseph resisted sexual temptation. Number one, Joseph resisted sexual sin by speaking truth into the situation. He resisted sexual sin by speaking truth into the situation. That's exactly what he does in verse 8, verse 9. He breaks through that seductive moment of temptation and speaks truth into it. Here is what my master has done for me. Here is what my God has done to take care of me. Now in light of all this, how can I now sin against my God? You know, sin is deceitful. Uh, One of the ways that sin deceives us is by presenting to us a false narrative. So remember the serpent tempting Eve. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's not what God said, is it? Right? He, he's even misquoting God. He's presenting a false narrative. God said they could eat of every tree of the garden except for one. The serpent says, you will not surely die. Though God had said they would die, and indeed die is what they did. And so this is the way of sin. Sin lies to us. Sin presents a false narrative, a, an incomplete picture of things. And so in this moment, sin is saying to Joseph, take this one. Lie with her. You'll have such a, a great time. Don't worry about anything else. Don't focus on the consequences. Ignore the consequences. Just focus on this woman who wants you in her bed with her. Potiphar's wife may well have said things to Joseph like, My husband will never find out. It'll be our little secret. You see, sin uses this strategy. Presents a narrative set that says always a false narrative sin uses this strategy of presenting a false narrative that says you can sin and get away with it you can sin and there will be no consequences it's just indulge enjoy yourself it'll be okay last sunday we read from proverbs 7 we saw how the seductive woman tempted the young man she wove this persuasive story making it appear that it would be a grand thing for this young man to to come to bed with her. And yet Solomon said that this young man was like a deer that got itself caught in a trap until an arrow goes right through its liver. Or he said, this this man is like a bird flying straight into a snare. I I think of the picture of a mousetrap. We set the cheese on the mousetrap. And we're presenting a false narrative to the the mouse. We want the mouse to focus on the cheese. Come eat the cheese. It'll be so good. Doesn't it look delicious? It's craft. You know, it looks so good. Come, come take a bite of this cheese. We don't tell the whole story. Oh, by the way, you die at the end. So when Joseph gets confronted with this powerful temptation and its false narrative, trying to tell him only half the story, go and enjoy this woman, he immediately speaks truth. Here's what Potiphar's done for me. Here's what ultimately God has done for me. In light of that, I cannot do this sin. And that's how it ought to be for us. In the midst of any temptation, no matter how strong, let us learn to take a step back and to confront the pull on our flesh with piercing truth. Now, one implication of this is that we ought to do all we can to hide God's Word in our hearts so that when temptation comes, we can speak truth to that temptation. We can break through the false narrative with the Word of God. When that sexual temptation comes, how helpful will it be for the Spirit to bring up into your mind, oh, the Bible says that this kind of temptation is playing with fire, and that those who play with fire get burned. Speak that to the temptation, but you can't speak it if you don't have it in here. And that's the way it is with every kind of temptation. We need to hide God's word in our hearts so that in the moment when the temptation blindsides us and that strong false narrative comes upon us, we can, we can break through it with the truth of God. We can be like the prodigal son. Remember, he came to his senses. Right? That's what we want to do in that moment. Come to our senses with the word of God. By the way, was this not the strategy of the Lord Jesus Christ? The devil tempting Jesus. Oh, Jesus, look at all this world that I will give to you. The whole kingdoms of all the world will all be yours. It's a pretty enticing narrative, isn't it? Jesus just cuts right through it with the word of God. Number two, number two. Joseph resisted sexual sin by counting the cost. By counting the cost. He fights this temptation by making a list of four practical ways that he has been blessed. And as he's making this list of these ways he has been blessed, he is acutely aware that if he commits this sin, he is automatically going to lose every one of these blessings. What he's doing in verses 8 and 9 is saying all the reasons why he should not commit this sin. Because these are ways that he has been blessed. These are ways that will all be lost the moment he sins. For example, look at the beginning of verse 8. Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. In other words, Joseph has been blessed with a reputation of trustworthiness, a reputation of integrity. And Joseph knows that this reputation, this good name, will be lost the moment he commits this sin. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor is better than silver or gold. It is a difficult task to develop a good name, a good reputation. It takes the blessing of God. And yet something that takes so long to build and establish can be lost in one fleeting, foolish moment. And sometimes it can be lost to such a degree that it will be hard, if not impossible, to ever rebuild again. He goes on in the verse, he, Potiphar, has put everything that he has in my charge. In other words, I've been blessed with great authority. I've been given power to manage the many assets of Potiphar, including I've been given authority over the rest of Potiphar's servants, over the rest of Potiphar's workmen. Church authority, when it is used for God's sake in God's ways, is a great blessing. And yet all of this authority, all of this exalting that God have done of Joseph in Potiphar's house would be lost the moment he committed this sin. He's counting the cost. He goes on, he says, He, Potiphar, is not greater in this house than I am. In other words, not only do I have authority, but I have I have position. I have been elevated to this very important office in this household. Um, I mentioned before he he had moved to the office over time of the personal attendant of Potiphar, and we have archaeological findings that tell us how important this office really was. He was the right hand man of a very important man in the kingdom of Egypt. He has been given this great position in the providence of God. If he commits this sin, it's gone immediately. D, or continuing, nor has he, Potiphar, kept back anything from me except yourself. So so not only did Joseph have a godly reputation, authority over much, an esteemed position, but Potiphar had given Joseph free the freedom to make use of all of his assets. Joseph actually lived in Potiphar's home by this point. Joseph was eating Potiphar's food. He had many earthly comforts. For a slave, he was very well off. He had become a blessed slave because of his integrity, because of God's blessing upon him. All of that would be lost the moment he committed the sin. And so you see, Joseph is counting the cost. And when temptation comes, with God's help, we should always do the same. Church, Every sin has a cost. Every sin has consequences. And not just spiritual consequences, though those are severe, but also earthly temporal consequences. Once you've looked at that illicit image, you will not be able to unsee it. If you look at that pornographic picture, you may carry that picture in your mind the rest of your life so that it pops back up into your mind at the very worst times, hindering your walk with God, hindering your relationships. Once you engage in a sexual act, you can't undo it. Once you've done it, you can't undo it, and its consequences will follow. Your walk with God will be hindered. Your heart will likely find it easier to give in to the temptation the next time it comes if you actually commit some act of fornication or adultery with another person, then your sins will not only affect you and your life and your relationships, but it will affect this other person, that person's life, that person's relationships. Remember, as much as the world tries to make sex look like a purely physical act, it is not purely physical. There is something spiritual, emotional, mysterious that is going on. Becoming intimate with another person, at whatever degree, always has consequences. There automatically will be some emotional involvement. Your relationship with that person will never be the same. Count the cost. Number three, Joseph resisted sexual temptation by holding marriage in honor. By holding marriage in honor. Joseph says, Nor has he, Potiphar, kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. In other words, it was right, Potiphar's wife, we don't know her names, so, it was right, you, right? It was right for your husband to keep you. Away from me. The rest of the house he gave me access to. But he said that you are off limits. That was right. You are his wife. This is what marriage is. It's the union of one man and one woman so that they belong to each other and not to anyone else. In church, we too are to have this high view of marriage. Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. There is a connection, by the way, between holding the institution of marriage in honor and keeping the marriage bed undefiled. If you're single and have a high view of marriage then you're going to save yourself or your future spouse so that you can enjoy the sexual benefits of marriage within that context, with that spouse. You don't want to corrupt that. A spouse is a great gift from God, a means of grace in our lives. Ultimately, the best kind of sex education in the world is the kind that a new husband and a new wife have as they begin exploring these things together, learning together, taking this journey together. Uh, Bodily intimacy leads to, to other kinds of intimacy. Husbands and wives grow in the union of their hearts, grow in the union of their minds as they experience these things together. And so to corrupt the marriage bed, either by fornication before marriage or adultery in marriage, is to dishonor this great gift. But what if I never get married? Well, then I've missed out, right? If, if I never get married, then I've, I've missed out. Well, friends, there is a special grace that God gives those Christians that He has called to singleness. And we need to be very clear on this. Marriage is a glorious institution. But singleness is also a glorious institution. 1 Corinthians 7 says that singleness is a gift from God. That's how Paul talks about it, as a gift. It's almost as if he's saying that people who aren't single are the weak ones, are the ones who are more needy and have further to go in grace. Almost as if he's saying that. Right? Right? He says that those who are single have the freedom to give themselves more fully to the things of God and the kingdom of God. Philippians 4 says that God gives strength to his people in whatever circumstances he calls them to so that they can have contentment. So if God does not call you to be single, I'm sorry, if God does call you to be single your whole life and you never have sex, that is not a curse. Jesus was not cursed with singleness. Paul was not cursed with singleness. The Bible says that this is a blessing. The Bible says that this is a gift and that there is a real contentment, even a real joy that God gives in that circumstance. Sex is a temporal, fleeting even shallow pleasure that is meant to point to the greater pleasures of spiritual intimacy with Christ. Singles often learn better than those who are married what it is to have true, close communion with Christ. Single Christians often know better than others what it is to have moments where where your fellowship with Christ is so rich that you feel completely enveloped in His love. History is full of testimonies to that. So don't ever, ever, ever see singleness as a curse or speak of singleness as a curse. It's not. To do that is to deny the Bible and it is to elevate sex too highly and it is to have a low view of the joys that God can give to people in their walk with Christ in whatever state He has called them to. Now, continuing on this connection, how a high view of marriage results in a high view and a a protecting of the marriage bed, whereas a low view of marriage results in a desire not to protect the marriage bed. I would suggest that we see that in our culture, Um, that it is very clear that as our culture has lowered its view of marriage, it has also lowered its view of sexual morality. Um, In a nation where marriage vows are no longer taken seriously, where divorce is no longer seen as shameful in any way. We can't be surprised that so many people are now engaging in all sorts of sexual activities outside of marriage. So I listened to Dr. Moeller talk this week about an article in the New York Times just this past weekend in which the writer got a a number of so-called marriage experts from across the United States. And they were discussing together how marriage needs to be reshaped as an institution in our country. In particular, they were saying that it might be better if couples began going into marriage with a marriage contract where they set a number of years and say, we're going to get married and for this number of years we're going to be together in a marriage contract but when that number of years is over our marriage will automatically end and we will be free from each other. Um. They were suggesting that a better way to do marriage in our society where love seems to be here for a while and then gone for a while is to say, not till death do we part, but I promise to be with you for X amount of years and then our marriage will be over. One so-called marriage expert went even further. She said that this revisioning of marriage would not go far enough Uh, Her her name is Virginia Rudder. She's from Framingham State University. She said that this proposal of a 20-year marriage contract was too conservative. She said, no, what we need to do, quote, is ban all performative weddings, ban all crazy expenditures, ban the marriage pages in the New York Times, ban those things that turn otherwise sensible people to start buying into that fantasy. And as Dr. Moeller points out, the fantasy, the fantasy that she's talking about is the fantasy of a happy marriage that lasts. Our culture is increasingly convinced that a happy marriage that lasts is not even a real thing that we should be able to indulge in our sexual desires in any way we would like without any covenant relationship because covenant relationships don't work. The Bible says that marriage is to becoming one in a covenant relationship for life. And the history of the world shows, especially in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that with God's help it often does work. The physical relationship between a husband and wife points to a deeper heart-to-heart relationship between husband and wife. So think of it this way. A daughter is a precious gift from God. And that daughter is to be cherished and loved by her parents, cared for, trained up well. That daughter is to flourish under the care of her parents. Then comes the day When the father is to give the daughter away to a man who will take over that responsibility of caring for her, nurturing her, cherishing her, providing for her. And it is this man, this husband, who is to enjoy sexual intimacy with this woman and her with him. Why? Because he has promised to care for her, to cherish her, to provide for her, to protect for her. This is what makes sexual intimacy in marriage so wonderful that it comes in the context of this relationship of commitment, this relationship of trust, this relationship of a covenant made before God so that a woman's body is for her husband alone and his for her. You see, to look at someone else's body in a lustful way, to look at somebody else without their clothes on, is to look at what God has reserved for someone else. To be sexual with a person who is not your spouse is to commit a sin, not only against that person, but against that person's future spouse, or current spouse. It's theft. It's taking what is not yours. Or if your sin is lust, you're desiring what is not yours, then it's it's covetousness. This is, by the way, 1 Thessalonians 4. You can Go home and look at 1 Thessalonians 4 where Paul talks about how committing sexual sin in the church is defrauding your brother. She's not your wife. She's his wife. You're not just wronging her. You're not just wronging yourself. You're wronging him. God made her for him. God made him for her. Okay, number four. Number four. Joseph resisted sexual temptation through gratitude. Through gratitude, When Joseph is going through this list, verses 8 and 9, about all the ways he has been blessed, he's not only counting the cost of what will be lost if he commits this sin, but he's also reminding himself of God's gracious blessings to him. And that's why those last words of verse 9 are so important. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? in light of all that God has done through Potiphar to bless me. How can I do this? How can I sin against the God who's been so good to me? You see, gratitude was key in Joseph fighting this temptation. He was so satisfied in God, so thankful for God's blessings on his life, he could not even imagine doing this thing. It would tear his tender conscience up to do this against the God. It would have been so good to him. Temptation works by trying to create discontentment. Temptation works by pulling us, pulling on us to make us feel that we cannot be satisfied unless we do this thing. So being content in God's love, being content resting in Christ, living with this attitude of gratitude, this disarms temptation. Temptation has no power over you if you're living with a grateful heart towards God. Its whole pull, its whole strategy of discontentment just falls away. This is why it is really hard to overstate the importance of gratitude in the Christian life. That's what we see in the New Testament. Anytime we find instructions about living the Christian life in the New Testament, we see gratitude front and center. It is really important. We could look at Paul's letter to the Colossians where he, he talks about how they need to be kind and humble, meek and patient, forbearing, forgiving, loving, all of these practical instructions. And yet he says this, Underneath it all, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's contentment. To which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Contentment in Christ Resting in Christ, being at peace in Christ, results in a heart of gratitude. And gratitude is the fountain from which holy living springs. Let me say that again. Contentment in Christ, resulting in gratitude, is the fountain from which holy living springs. Gratitude is the force field that deflects all the temptations of the devil. Gratitude makes his fiery darts bounce off of us with no effect. So in Colossians 3.15, in the middle of this discussion about how to practically live the Christian life, he says, be thankful. Then he goes to verse 16, and he says we're to help each other in the Christian life. We're to sing to each other and admonish one another and encourage one another. And he says we're to do this with thankfulness. And then he goes to verse 17, and he says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. And so over and over and over again, there's this repetition. Gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. Live in light of what God has done for you. Live with a heart springing forth in joy and peace. That is your ultimate weapon against sin. Fight the pleasure that sin offers with a superior pleasure. Why would I want that when I have this? Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, fight temptation by cultivating gratitude to God in your hearts. Live every day in light of the gospel, in light of what Christ has done for you. Live every day in light of how much He sacrificed for you, in light of the blessings He has poured out on you, Live every day in light of the promises He has made to you. Live every day in light of the future that He has told you is ahead of you. When you think about those things, when you live in those things, when you are swimming day in and day out in those things, temptation will not have a pull on your life. Finally, number five. Number five. Joseph resisted sexual sin by fleeing, by fleeing. Look again, verses 11 and 12. But one day when he went to the house to do his work, none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by his garment saying, in our language, have sex with me. That's what that is. So this is the most forceful temptation yet. This is the the strongest the temptation has come upon Joseph. And how does he respond? He left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Church, fight sexual sin by speaking truth into the situation, by counting the cost, by having a high view of marriage, by cultivating gratitude in your life. But when a temptation comes at you full force and you can feel its clutches on you like Potiphar's wife on Joseph's garment, in that moment, run for your life. That's how serious sin is. Jesus said, even about sexual sin, if your eyes cause you to sin, pluck them out. If your hands cause you to sin, cut them off. It's better to go into heaven maimed than to go into hell with a full body. In other words, sin is serious. So don't be the wimp that says, well, Jesus, I resisted for a while, but look, she's pulling on my garment. What can a man do? No. Joseph ran. He left the garment in her hand, and he fled. 1 Corinthians six eighteen: Flee from sexual immorality. It's interesting. We've talked before here at our church about how the Bible presents us two ways to fight sin. One way is to stand firm against it and fight it, and the other way is to run away. It is interesting that when it comes to sexual immorality, we are specifically told, get ready to run away. There's something particular about this sin that we are warned you need to be ready to flee. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So there is something, that's a hard verse to interpret, okay, but there is something unique about sexual sin that makes it especially important for us to get out of any situation where we think we might be falling into it. So, when sexual temptations come our way, despite our gratitude, despite our high view of marriage, Despite our counting the cost, despite our speaking truth into the situation, if we've done all that and we can still feel the pull of sin on us, in that moment we need to turn around and run as fast as we can. You don't want to be an ox being led to the slaughter. Be like the ox who wises up. He sees the sacrificial knife ahead and he turns around and runs. That's what we ought to do. Now, church, these are five practical strategies for fighting sexual sin. But here's something we all know we need Jesus' help if we're going to do any of them. And so let's close tonight by asking for his blessing and his help for this battle. Let's pray. And so,